0: What's up? Pastor Kevin Davis here, Woodland Friends Church, hopefully coming at you with one of the last sermons from the Proverbial Sermon Vault in a while, but I shouldn't make promises. I learned that last Christmas. Hey, last week I was in uh, Newburgh, Oregon for our yearly meeting, our uh, general conference, and there was a lot about church planting. Um, I was invited to say the prayer for offering at one of our combined worship services and the Lord kind of sprung on me a text that I uh, read from Um, but I recalled that I preached on it so I just thought it would be neat to take that from the vault give that to you this week again if you head over to Woodland Friends Church YouTube page you'll find yet another sermon from the vault so hopefully coming at you beginning next Sunday with new sermons this week the reason I'm uploading a sermon from the sermon vault is because we're doing a kid's message again. So thanks for tuning in week by week, guys.
1: Alright, so gonna ask you to close your eyes if you can. Close your eyes. <laughs> Don't close them that hard. As you close your eyes, I'm gonna tell you we are going to deal with the big problem today, the big problem, the problem you might come to church with every Sunday and wish it could be fixed. So we're going to deal with that problem. I'm sure you're glad you came this Sunday. Keeping your eyes closed, I want you to think of it, visualize it, if you can, that big problem, the biggest, darkest, meanest, most impossible conundrum, that very dark place in your life that problem that you may confide in others with about but also it's such a heartache to discuss being your pastor your family your friend I know for some of you what that problem is I'm talking about that son or that daughter who is wayward who is so far down the wrong road it's just pinpricks in your heart For some of you, it might be in your entire family, you're worried about them. Maybe you pray for them, maybe you don't. Today would be a good time to start praying for them. For others of you, it is finances and the inability to get more finances. For others of you who thought I would leave you out, but I'm not. I'm talking about the sin that you keep in the closet. The sin that's better for you and more convenient for you to keep it there. That sin, that secret sin that you're in the vicious cycle in. The sin that you're certain is going to be the death of you. And you live on the cusp of worrying if Jesus really forgives you 70 times 7. For others of you who are right now thinking, oh, this is a sermon that John Doe should be here for. I'm calling you out too. <laughs> you have a big, impossible hurdle of a problem. Past hurt. Past hurt. That doesn't go away. A broken relationship. Frightful insecurity that makes you someone you're not when you're around people. Whatever it is, bring that biggest problem that keeps you up at night. That you feel like if it was dealt with, you could suddenly rest easier and life would be a little more enjoyable. If it's up in the forefront, or if it's not, find that problem and bring it to front and center. Heavenly Father, now that we're all here, and we're all vulnerable, and we're all honest, I invite you to speak to us, because Father, there is nothing that I could say that will help, but just one word of your breath could help us. I invite you to speak clearly and audibly to us, move me out of the way. Say what you desire, because, Father, your desire is our heart's desire. We long to hear your voice, so amen. speak to us. We ask and pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. May okay, open your eyes. We've asked God to speak to us, and he does in a myriad of ways, but I'm not ashamed to say that I think a primary way he speaks to us is through the Bible. It's why I'm such a fan of this book. I'm not saying it's the only way he speaks to us. We have our dark problems at the forefront of our mind, and we asked Jesus to speak to us, and so now we're going to open his word, trusting him. You can be turning to Mark chapter 5, the passage that Vince just read for us. But as we catch up with our disciples and Jesus this week, last week we talked about a hard Trek across the Sea of Galilee that they experienced. The word that's used in Mark 43 Mark 4, verse 37, is a great windstorm. It's the same Greek word used for a hurricane. It was horrific storm, in which the disciples feared greatly for their lives. Despite the fact that Jesus has said before taking off, he had said, Let's go across, quote, to the other side. You see, for the disciples, Jesus is just this mere mortal man who is exhaustedly sleeping in the boat. Like many mere mortal men before Jesus and the disciples, that may have been their famous last words we're going to get across to the other side, and they never did. So that's what the disciples are thinking. However, what Jesus says always goes because Jesus is sovereign. They are, they will. Get across to the other side. Which is what happens at the beginning here in Mark chapter 5 verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. The country of the Gerasenes, uh, some of your Bibles probably say a different name. People get hung up on the name, different manuscripts. Whenever people might make Bibles, different manuscripts had different names. Which is why they can't agree. But what they can agree... What is undisputed is that this is Gentile territory. This is Gentile territory. Few contextual clues to see that. Verse 11, we see that pigs are being raised. Gentiles would do this, maybe backslidden Jews, but very highly unlikely. However, we'll see clearly next week that there is a general dislike for Jesus. What Jesus is going to do here, Jesus tells the person to declare what's been done, And the Decapolis, which is a political collection of 10 Greek city-states, Gentile cities. Mark paints this picture, particularly in the second verse, that this place is just a community right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. They are on the southeastern side. Jesus was preaching near Capernaum before, so he's come from the northwestern side. But before we head on through these verses, I want to explain a Jewish psychological aversion to the idea of what Jesus and the disciples are doing. You see, they are heading into Gentile territory. There were laws about these things, what Jews could do with Gentiles, and what they could not do. This had to do with separation concerning religion, concerning marriage. In places like Exodus 23 or Deuteronomy 7, Joshua 23, These are all Old Testament passages that basically say have nothing to do with these people. Now, I'm not saying every Jew at all places and at all times observed these things religiously and piously. And in fact, many Old Testament prophets are angry because Israel is not always following these laws. However, what has to be rather peculiar for these 12 disciples who are still getting over their bumpy crossing is the wonder of what is a Jewish rabbi who is on a mission of deliverance and salvation? What is he, what is he doing taking them to the Gentiles? Israel has always been a light for the nations. And so for the, the teachings that come before Jesus, what is called many rabbinic teachings, it would seem that salvation would always be for the particular people of Israel. Now, there were mentions of Gentiles coming to Israel, but never, in the Jewish mind, should it be the other way around. Jews are never to go out into Gentile nations and proselytize. This is why, when this happens in the book of Acts, well after Jesus, and well after the episode we're talking about here, while it takes up a few few chapters, there's a big church gathering, we need to have a, a council about this, we need to discuss it, And finally, they come to consistence saying, yes, this is God's will that they might be saved. But that's far off. And so the question is, what is Jesus doing here with these people? What is he doing here? They might feel that they just went across the sea for nothing. It's going to be fruitless. There's no reason to be here, Jesus. It's worthless to spend time with Gentiles. And then as we read these verses, we're going to see that the whole thing reeks of just being very unclean. There's pigs here. They don't worship the same God, nor would they care. And look at what happens right when they arrive. Verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Hmm. One of Mark's favorite words is immediately. He uses it often. I want you to see that the idea here is that Jesus has landed on enemy turf. He is unwanted. This is nothing new for Jesus as already in many places he comes into contact with, quote, unclean spirits. This first happened in a synagogue in Capernaum, Mark one twenty-three. And with that unclean spirit and every unclean spirit to come after, there have been many of them. Jesus has had authority over them, the unclean spirits, and he usually casts them out and he commands them not to speak. But for the Jewish reader, as well as for the disciple who's been with Jesus throughout most of these encounters, perhaps there's a little tension. Perhaps there's wonder Will or can Jesus do the same here in enemy territory? In Gentile territory? See, one of the other preconceived ideas in the Jewish mindset is that what is happening here is to be expected. They expected that demons and unclean spirits are just rampant in Gentile territory, in pagan territory, because it's godless. So the Jewish mindset... Again, Israel is set apart. Israel is God's chosen people. So, of course, the Gentile lands are pagan and open to all all kinds of demonic spirituality. And so, though it's likely frightening what's happening with this man, it's also a little ironic. It's a little expected that, well, the welcoming party at the Gentile coast is a demon-possessed man. Of course it's going to be. Of course it is. Jesus and the disciples have landed in a very... Dark place. They meet a demon-possessed man who lives among the tombs. Just imagine a homeless guy living next door in the cemetery. <laughs> hmm. Nobody likes him. Nobody dares to go near him. And the tombs in that day were caves in the hillside. You know, even for the the the, the old law says for about the Jewish person, excuse me, the, the Israelite, Whenever they come into contact with dead people, they are defiled for seven days. And furthermore, if they don't seek to purify themselves ritually or physically, Numbers 19 says that that person must be cut off from Israel completely. This is Jesus' first encounter as he lands. And I find it interesting in verse 2... Though probably, eventually, we will assume that the disciples are getting off and setting foot onto this land. Verse 2 only mentions that Jesus stepped foot onto this land. Only Jesus. But Mark then goes in to vividly explain the hopelessness and the helplessness of this man. Verses 2 through 5, it says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. First thing, I want to emphasize one more time that a Jew showing up to this happening with this person it would be like red neon lights avoid avoid. I mean 15, I don't know, that's just an exaggerated number, but like 15 law-breaking things happening and you could just hear the shouts of unclean, unclean. Even today in our time, I would probably steer clear of this person. I mean, call it a lack of faith that I could do anything, call it cowardice, call it what you want, but I'm just not going to get near that guy. (laughs) Second thing, if you have a study guide for our series on the table out there, the the chapters one through five, the older one, James Rolbright, he did a study for this passage, and he said, quote, I'm not sure the Bible offers a more vivid picture of hopelessness, despair, and destitution than the Gerasene demoniac. And one of my commentaries would agree, noting the description of the demoniac is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. I mean, look at this. Verses 3 through 4 gives about eight references to binding, chains, and the inability to be subdued. He's like a mad, wild animal. He can't be bound. Imagine his family... I don't know, they're pagans, but imagine his family just hoping or wishing that he could stay in one place and at one day maybe be approachable. But for them, that day is never coming. Verse 5 tells us that he's one of these people who cries out, he shrieks. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but people like that scare me. (laughs) You know, you know they're lost. You know they're deluded. You know that their mind is somewhere that you don't want to go. Nor do you want to find out what their mind says about you whenever you talk to them. Verse 5 also tells us he mutilated himself. Perhaps another reason many tried to capture him and bind him. But it was no use. This man is mutilating himself. I want you to see, this is the ultimate Desire for the enemy. That God or anything in God's image is mutilated or destroyed because the enemy doesn't want to reflect God's image nor be reminded of God's image. Immediately we see that this demoniac is a far cry different from previous encounters that Jesus has had with unclean spirits in the book of Mark. See, most accounts thus far have just been in the demoniac, said, who are you, son of the most high God? And Jesus just shuts them up and casts them out. But the picture here is that Jesus is being met by a man who has a, maybe a history, obviously a history with these demons. The demons have been with them, we don't know for how long. And in some instances, this is a picture of the Gentile nation. Of all the people who are far from God. And spiritually, this is a picture of you and and I, of who we are without God. Mentally and physically, this man is in torture, he is helpless, completely bound up, completely possessed by demons, completely incapable of helping himself. Jesus has arrived to meet an unclean man in an unclean place near unclean animals. It's all unclean. It's all bleak. It's all Hopeless. I wonder if you've been here. What is your big problem that I ask you to think about? The situation is too far gone. The wayward child just never intends to come back. The stakes are too high. It's been this way for too long. It's all godless. It's all missing something. It's all beyond repair. The sin has been eating at you for too long. The insecurity, it's just too ingrained. It's part of your life. I wonder if you've been here. Look at what happens. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus, that is the demon, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I want to start with verse 8, because Mark, the writer, seems to indicate that this was the first word exchanged between both of them. Jesus and the demoniac. And I have to be honest, as I I wrote this sermon and I just studied it, this is my favorite picture in this sermon. I just love this idea. Because of legalistic and non-compassionate religion if that ever existed among the disciples you know if there or if there were religious pharisaical people wanting to hear this story red flags are going up like crazy jesus shouldn't be there those are demons uh, they are in gentile territory they're they're in contact with an unclean man who lives in the cemetery there's pigs around and i get this picture of jesus of this protective tipped off righteously indignant dude who just hops the boat and makes a beeline for the demoniac (laughs) towards the creepy guy that not even other Gentiles want to be around. And I get this picture of Jesus sternly yelling, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Kind of the same way you'd expect somebody to say, go take a long walk off a short pier. You're done here. (laughs) And I want you to see, this is kind of a moment of of revelation for the demons, for Satan's kingdom, for the dark world. Because in verse 6, we see the demoniac running to Jesus and falling down before him. Kind of the same way, I think, whenever you're in the office and you're about to fall asleep, and then the manager comes in. So you're hurriedly looking busy. But see, this, this falling down before Jesus, it's very evident that it's reverent, it's subservient, um, some translations do use the word worship, but it's not an act of worship from the demon. Yes, the word means to fall prostrate, but it literally gives the picture of like when a dog licks its master's hand. That's that's what's happening here. So for the, the demon, I think it's more of a cowering in fear. Oh no, the postman man is here, I'm in trouble. And this demon knows his place, and it says, in crying out with a loud voice, He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. Here's what I see this as. The demons, Satan, they kind of see Gentile territory as the devil's playground. Right, like like Jews, Israel, that's Jesus' playground, And Satan, he's he's out to kill Jesus, and in fact, whenever he thinks he has killed Jesus at the cross, he thinks he's won, he thinks the game is over, because he thinks that Jesus is just concerned about Jews in Israel. But it's something that the enemy did not see coming, Jesus landing here on Gentile shores. What is he doing here? The demons ask, what have you to do with me? Which is basically a roundabout saying of, what we demons here do with this poor unlucky sap is no concern of yours, Jesus. Go back to Israel, that's your playground, we're in ours. But they say this in a nice way, a way that's reluctantly subservient. They plead, I adjure you by God, or some say, I swear to God, don't torment me. They're appealing to God because these demons think that they're being treated unfairly. It's against the rules, Jesus. Why are you in our playground? You can't be here. Don't do anything to us. And I love this because Jesus is in charge. You know, I think the disciples have to see it coming because they just witnessed Jesus tell an entire weather system to just disintegrate over the sea. And here Jesus is with the demons. Jesus shows up. He finds the demons just doing what they usually do, torturing people. Jesus, I feel like he just flips, gets out of the boat. Seriously, would you just knock that off? And he's about to talk to them, I think, like a manager, talks to his employees. Look at what he says. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. This, is this part really necessary? <laughs> I kind of wondered. I mean, I feel like we're witnessing small talk. What's your name? Legion. Oh, is that a paternal name? Did your granddaddy name you that? Or, is that Swedish? What is Legion? You know, in past exorcisms, Jesus, all he had to do was just command the unclean spirits to go out and leave. Most commentators say, well, in that time there was a formula for these things, and one of the things is you had to know the name of the demon to cast them out. Jesus doesn't have to know their name, but that's maybe why he asked what the name was. But the demons here... They evade Jesus' answer. They don't give their name or names. They just say, we are legion. Because they are many. This might be a last pathetic attempt at intimidating. As an in, oh, there's many of us, so good luck trying to get every last one of us out of this poor guy here. And I'm sure Jesus was like, oh, you know, one demon, I can handle that. and Man, massive storm systems, I can take care of those things, but... Well, I've met my match, exercising all these many demons at one time. No, Jesus doesn't do that. And this is Mark's intention. I think he wants readers to see how high the stakes appear to be. Gentile territory, hopelessly lost, tortured, and wrecked man, and a legion of demons. Interesting historical side note. Some of you might remember that Mark is writing to Christians in Rome at the time. And believers in Rome were under the oppression of Roman persecution. Isn't it interesting that the name Legion is also the name given to a group of Roman soldiers? And here, Jesus is telling Legion what to do. Jesus could probably handle the persecution of Christians as well. In any case, I love the fact that these demons, they're trying to intimidate. We're many. Good luck, Jesus. And then look at what happens. Verse 10, his tune changes. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. I like this. Jesus doesn't even respond. We're a legion. And Jesus is thinking, I'm not even going to merit that with response, whatever. And the demons realize, okay, we're toast. They go from one last intimidation to to begging. We really don't know why they don't want to go out of the country. You know, Maybe Satan has them on duty where they're at. Maybe Satan isn't as forgiving as Jesus is. I told you to stay put. Maybe they like the country. Maybe they like picking on the locals. They're near tombs. Maybe they took familiar shapes and haunted the locals. Maybe there's a good Starbucks there. I don't know. And the point is, I think we're not really supposed to care. They are on the losing team. They're pathetic weasels who are answerable to Jesus, and we are on team Jesus. Mark, in my mind, I think he gets a little funnier. Look at verse 11. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Now, verse numbers were not added to the Bible until the 15th century. So you kind of have to think some scribe was like, oh, I know what to make one verse here. Verse 11 Maybe the scribe wanted us to get a, a a tinge of comedic foreshadow. I mean, readers would go, wait a minute, the demons don't want to go out of the country. Oh, Jesus Jesus just notices a, a herd of pigs. Oh, this is great. <laughs> and it gets funnier, look at what the demons say, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Can you hear the fear in these demons? They went from indignant questioning, Jesus, you entered our playground, to intimidation. There's a lot of us to begging. We'll we'll enter the pigs, whatever you want us to do. Pigs are great. We love pigs. (laughs) We'll stop picking on people. Um, I mean, if demons had pants, they would be wetting them. (laughs) Verse 13. So Jesus gave them permission. Right? Jesus is like, I will allow it. Knock yourselves out. Go get into those pigs. It'll be a heyday. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. First of all, can we just do what we have been doing and take it for what it is? I think this is very funny. (laughs) It's just funny. I mean, commentators, scholars, teachers, pastors, you know, we can straighten our ties, scratch our heads, and try to talk some sort of significant point from this. But it's just funny, and I love it. I love that Jesus shows up at the devil's playground, he finds demons doing nothing new, and he just flips. Now, the demons, for whatever reason, request to occupy pigs, and they don't want to leave their territory. What happens? They get into pigs, and they leave the territory, and they commit suicide. Jesus won, demon zero. Now, does this mean that the demons died with the pigs? Or or, or whose pigs were they? And did Jesus reimburse the livelihood of the poor pig farmer who lost all his games? Did, Did Jesus plan for the demons to go overboard and die? And what I will say is that questions like that were ignoring one huge plot point. See, the story doesn't answer all those questions about the stupid pigs, the idiotic mad demons, for a reason. Because the point of the story is Jesus and a man. The demoniac is free. The point of the demons possessing the pigs and running off the cliff is not the point, the ultimate point of the story. The point of the story is Jesus showing up and saving this man. Jesus saves this man. The guy was mentally lost. He was on the horrific verge of committing suicide, self-mutilation. The man was like a ravenous beast, chained up, who always broke free. And this should bring you great hope. Because this man was helpless. And all meanings of that term, helpless. He couldn't stop it even if he wanted to. He probably wasn't even in the right mind to care. Could anybody but King Jesus save this man? This man's family maybe worried, maybe left him to his devices a long time ago. This man's mind was not even present. Extreme, utter helplessness. And you know what the neat thing is? We're going to read the end of the story next week, which is basically Jesus just conversing with this guy who no longer has demons. And what does Jesus do? He gets back on the boat and he crosses the sea back into Jewish territory. You know what that means? Jesus, after preaching for so many hours, falls asleep in a stormy sea, goes across a life-threatening Sea of Galilee into hostile Gentile territory for just one reason, To save this man who isn't even Jewish Who never asked for any help from Jesus Who wasn't even in the right mind To express any intentions of wanting to be saved Jesus saves him And heads back What did this man do to deserve it? Nothing What does this man have to do to pay Jesus back After Jesus saves him? Nothing Isn't that amazing? Wasn't, wasn't this man in a dark, dark place? Wasn't he unable to do anything? And it involved what this man was going through involves everything about those big problems that you and I go through. This man was possessed by demons, and even if this man had caring family members, who were followers of God, probably not, maybe. but this man seemed to be on saving. Your family members were suffering. They couldn't do anything. The man was possessed. The man commits all kinds of sinful atrocities. And he never was ever going to stop. This man's life, monetary life, familial life, relational life, it was all ruined. And Jesus saved him. You and I might be impressed by this, but consider this church, lest we forget Far many years before this man was possessed by demons, two other people who were just merely tempted committed the one sin that would forever separate God from humanity. And again, humanity was totally jacked up, and again, we were helpless, unable to fix it, we were brainless, didn't know where to start, we were hopeless, couldn't do a thing to please God, always messing up, always sinning, there was no way out. And God, on his own accord, even before Adam and Eve asked, never did humanity do a thing to merit it. But God takes another journey. Instead of across the Sea of Galilee from the home of Israel, God leaves the home of heaven and comes to earth. And Paul calls earth ruled by a ruler, prince in power of darkness. Why? Why? Does God become flesh to save us? To save us. He goes across the proverbial sea from divinity to humanity. He goes across the proverbial sea from heaven to earth. He goes across the proverbial sea from purity and innocence to taking on our sin and taking on our corruption. And he crosses the proverbial sea from death to life. And I think it's fitting to read what Paul says about Jesus' dying for our sins in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verse 13. Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Jewish way of saying, you who were dead in your sins and your state of not being a Jew. This is what God did. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, right? He took our sin, the punishment due to us, and this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then look at this verse 15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I'll rarely say something like this. I'm sorry, I know some of you read this. But I like what the message
0: says.
1: (laughs) In verse 15 it says, He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. So friends, your big problem Your huge problem, your gigantic, dark, scary, seemingly never going to end problem. Wayward family members, a dark closet of sin, insecurities. Hear me, church. King Jesus can take those problems and save you from those problems. How do I know this? He saved you from sin. And he saved the demoniac who never even asked him. And he did it. Without asking anyone if they wanted it to be done in the first place. He did it demanding no payment in return. He did it for both those who would believe upon his name and trusted him and ask for those who reject him. That's their own decision. But the gift is always there for the taking. Jesus did this out of what? He did this with love. Jesus did this because he loves us. So don't miss this. He loves you. What's your problem, your deep, dark problem? Can God fix it? He loves you. (coughs) He's already fixed your biggest problem, your sin problem. What did Colossians tell us? Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to open shame. They cannot touch you, your wayward family members. God loves you. God loves the pagan Gerasene demoniac. He loves your wayward family members. Your closet sin that you cannot shake. The demoniac obviously was in sin. He didn't even ask to be healed, forgiven, or made clean. I would encourage you to keep asking. Because if God does that for somebody who doesn't ask, keep asking. Why would Jesus heal you? Not because you oppressed him, not because you're in the right or the wrong church, not because you've said enough prayers, not because you've cried enough tears, not because you've heard the right sermons, but he would do it because he loves you. He's crossed so many seas for you, and he loves you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Thank you for crossing the sea of divinity and becoming Jesus who walked among us. Father, we just witnessed one of his stories today where he crossed a quite literal sea. He did a lot just to do one simple thing, to heal someone. We don't even read if this man remains a Christian. We do read that he wants to witness about you. But, Father, you didn't do it because of anything he ever did for you. You did it because you loved him. Father, you gave us a picture of what you do for us. Father, many of us, we brought to the forefront of our minds problems that you know ins and outs of. You know every faucet and factor. You know the end of it. Father, many of us are here before you. Filling the burden of the weight of these problems. Father, would you remind us again of your love for us. And that it's not going to be any magical prayer that we say, anything we do. It's going to be out of your love that you will see us through the other side. And Father, as we talked about last week, sometimes it doesn't mean you just calm the storm. It means that you are able to get us to the other side. So we thank you. We ask that as we depart today that we would feel those burdens lifted, knowing that our lives are in the hands of a God who loves us. We thank you for that. Father, we pray for a safe trip home. We pray for all those who could not be here today. Touch their, their sicknesses and bring them to health. We thank you for all that you do, and we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.